0: Today is December 8th, 2016, and before introducing today's guest, I want to encourage listeners to go to econtalk.org. You'll find a link there to vote for your favorite episodes of 2016 and give us some additional feedback. Thank you so much. Now on to today's guest, who is Robert Hall, the Robert and Carol McNeil Joint Hoover Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics at Stanford University University. In addition to having published widely in many areas of macroeconomics and beyond, Bob is the chair of the National Bureau of Economic Research's Committee on Business Cycle Dating, which maintains the semi-official chronology of the U.S. business cycle. That is, Bob is the chair of the committee that decides when recessions start and when they end. Bob, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. I want to start by discussing a recent paper of yours that will link to The Anatomy of Stagnation in a Modern Economy – And I'm going to read the opening paragraph. Uh, It's pretty, pretty blunt and dramatic. In the years following the global financial crisis of 2008, many modern advanced economies suffered stagnation. Unemployment rose sharply and declined slowly. Output fell substantially and growth remained substandard even eight years later. Investment in plant equipment, software, and research and development languished. Productivity grew well below its historical rate monetary and fiscal measures to offset these developments were aggressive but were only partially successful. This paper studies these events as they occurred in the single largest advanced economy, that of the USA, end quote. Now, a lot of people have argued that while fiscal and monetary policy were only partially successful, that's simply because they just weren't aggressive enough. Do you agree?
1: Well, first of all, with respect to monetary policy, um, the uh, the standard policy of lowering interest rates was Done about as aggressively as possible, maybe not quite, but pretty close. With respect to fiscal policy, um, really a lot happened, but it happened mainly because of of uh, the what are called the automatic stabilizers. Um, discretionary fiscal policy, as in, in previous contractions, um, was not uh, was not politically feasible. It turned out, um, so I think I would probably agree that that. In some ideal world, more would have been done on the fiscal side.
0: So when you look at the stimulus package of uh, the early days of the Obama administration, which was, I don't know what, ended up being around $800 billion, why is that not a, was not a significant amount? Well, first of all, um, a large amount of that money went to state and local governments, and
1: rather than... uh, Expanding their uh, fiscal effects. Um, a lot of them, uh, a lot of the governments used it to pay off debt, understandably. But uh, if you stare at the national income accounts uh, on the government purchases of state and local governments, you don't see any sign whatsoever. In fact, you see a contraction. Um, so uh, calling it $800 billion is. Is a bit of a myth in terms of what was actually delivered as stimulus to the economy,
0: and a good another good chunk of it was uh, a tax rebate. That um, it just—it's interesting to me. There's this myth that that it was all these shovel-ready infrastructure projects. I don't particularly think that would have necessarily been a good idea or successful, but it's not what we did.
1: <laughs> I think that's right. So you, you, if you look at the the national income and product accounts uh, at the category that would include these supposedly shovel-ready projects. You just don't see an expansion. Remember that most of, most of that type of spending is done by state and local governments, not by the federal government. So the fact that the federal government couldn't articulate uh, a change in what the other government units were doing came through very clearly. But all research of every contraction has shown that the same thing happens. So this is not really a surprise. When you say the same thing, what do you mean? I mean that the, the federal government would like to expand the economy by inducing state and local governments to, to spend more, but they don't have the tools to do it, at least they've neither the political will nor the tools to make it happen. And so there's a long literature, as um, long as I've been an economist, which is a long time, uh, that shows that uh, discretionary policy aimed at increasing government purchases like, like infrastructure. Just don't work, or if they do work, uh, they don't start stimulating uh, the economy until it no longer needs it. Uh, there's there's some work that that shows that it's actually perverse because the it takes so long to get the spending cranked up if it ever does. Uh, it's when the economy is 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 back into a boom condition.
0: So, what do you see as the set of factors that explains the mediocrity of this recovery? The fact that, as you say, eight years into it. Uh, into the recovery, um, we see very little recovery or improvement in investment. The labor market, a lot of people have suggested it's been very disappointing, even though unemployment's low, employment and labor force participation is low. Uh, what do you think explains it? Well, the, the two big factors, you just mentioned one of
1: them, labor force participation, totally unexpectedly fell several percentage points, at least three percentage points. Uh, more than you'd expect, even even given uh, the uh, deep recession. So that's one factor. Even more important is simply the slowdown in productivity growth. Uh, we've had productivity growth, but at much lower rates, uh, and that's just fundamental to uh, to the amount of output. I you know I've studied the labor market pretty carefully, and I'm convinced. And uh, other papers that, that I've written recently make the argument that. Uh, the labor market really is back to, to absolutely normal conditions. Uh, the unemployment rate of 4.6% is well below the long-run average of 5.9% for unemployment. Um, some key factors like how long it takes an employer to fill a job. Uh, uh, it takes longer than it ever has before to, to fill a typical job. That's a sign of a, of a tight labor market. So, so at, at this point, we can't say that there's a lingering effect uh, in the labor market, but there are other lingering effects, uh, which, are, which are quantified in that paper you mentioned.
0: What do you think of the work of Casey Mulligan, who's been a guest on the program, talking about the impact of changes in various welfare programs and their implicit marginal tax rates that have discouraged workers? Well, I think philosophically, I I agree with a lot of the points he's made,
1: which is that we've created a system where Uh, people become dependent on programs, lose their benefits so aggressively uh, that they become trapped. It it just doesn't make sense to uh, enter the labor market even though it's back to normal uh, because uh, of losing benefits. And there was a big expansion of benefits which has not completely gone back to normal as a result. You know, Casey's numbers are, are in some ways, hard to interpret. I I, I wouldn't want to endorse. Uh, certainly, the, the the theme of his book, which was the entire recession was caused by it, does not square with anything I've looked at. Um, what I see is that about 8 million people suddenly lost their jobs, mostly in the late fall of 2008 and, and the first half of 2009. And that was a major factor. Working that off was actually a very time-consuming. And there's no way that it makes sense to say that those people... They lost their jobs because there was some increase in benefits and they quit their jobs. We know they didn't quit their jobs. Um, so, so that part of it, I, I think, is, is, is to my, in my analysis, overblown. But, but still, the need for reform of benefit programs, um, disability, probably the most important one, uh, is very acute. And, and, you know, there's just agreement across the board and economists at that point.
0: And related to that, do you see the long secular decline—secular meaning over time—decline over time in uh, prime-age male labor force participation to be explained in part or in large part by that expansion of disability opportunities, or is it something else going on? Is it people's skills? People are worried that you know these are manufacturing workers, a lot of them who keep, will not find good alternatives and are not returning to the labor market in the normal way. I, you know, it's a combination
1: of all, all the things you you mentioned, um, probably some more. Uh, first of all, it's it's among men. It's a very long-term phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, labor force participation was much higher uh, in 1950, uh, and then it's it's among uh, among men, uh, and and it's declined. You know, a pretty smooth trend. Whereas the situation for women is quite different, there was there was yep. a big increase in participation among women, and then uh, about ten to fifteen years ago, that changed, and we've we've seen some decline of participation by by women. But the you know work has become less common, um, and uh, particularly work among uh, young people. Uh, and the most yeah. stunning fact is that that about. In in the year 2000, not that long ago, uh, about half of all teenagers at any given time were working. Today, it's less than 25%. So there's been a decline in half of the fraction of teenagers who are employed. That's the most extreme number. But you see the same thing among, uh, uh, say, the 20 to 24-year-olds, and you see it uh, among uh, older men especially. Um, and that's very tied in with with uh, the evidence about the declining health in those uh, age groups um, and 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 the absorption by uh, disability, uh, which is there was a bulge of, of people going on to disability, which has not reversed itself. Um, going, going on disability is pretty much a trap in the sense that uh, really few people who make that decision and, and are qualified uh, then exit.
0: Yeah, we had Eric Hurston recently talking about the You mentioned teenagers. He finds that uh, in his work with some co-authors, I think it's 21 to 30-year-olds who are not in school, I think 18 percent did not work in the previous year compared to eight, uh, 10, 15 years. I can't remember the time frame, but it's a short time frame, and it's – a lot of these folks are living at home – it's, it's playing a, video games. That's what he says. I don't know. If we're, I know. I know. I'm not oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I follow the progress of that paper. Yeah, <laughs> in, I don't know in detail. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. But uh, let's let's move to, um, or at least I'm skeptical that video games driving the change, which is what he's. I'm sure some of them were playing video games while they're at home. Uh, let's go to productivity growth, which you said is sort of the crux of the matter. A lot of people have argued recently at least a lot of prominent people have argued recently that the reason investment is down and productivity is down is because we've figured out all the interesting and productive things to invest in. Uh, what's your view on that hypothesis? And uh, if you disagree, what do you, what do you look forward to think about it?
1: Yeah. So Greg Yipf had an article in yesterday's wall street so, journal yeah. that I, it was, it's such a tired old story. Um, and you know, we have surges of productivity there, there was productivity pessimism, uh, say, around 1990, uh, similar to what there is today, uh, and, and similar saying, you know, all the, all the good ideas have already been uh, influenced, and, and, and then the internet came along and, and, and gave this remarkable, or things like it.
0: But that was the last one. Yeah. That was it. That, it was, there was one left. We found it. Now it's <laughs> over. Okay. Well, I don't know. I, I, I gave a talk recently
1: uh, to, to a popular audience about um, computer vision. And the changes that it makes, and um, for one, one example I showed in a video was the difference between the way trash used to be collected from households, which you you'd have a truck with a team of three guys, two of whom rode outside and jumped off, yep. uh, emptied a trash bin, and then pushed a button and the thing and then it went up, and then they would get back on, and they would go to the next house. Uh, today. The trash uh, in most places, certainly where I live, um, is picked up by a truck that has one guy, and he barely stops. And then computer vision takes over. It spots your trash bin wherever it is. It reaches over. It adjusts for any mistakes that the driver made. Uh, flips the trash very, you know, at least three times more quickly than the guys could do it. So, so you have a threefold uh, reduction in the number of people, from three to one, and you have a tripling of the speed. So the productivity of collecting trash has gone up by a factor of nine. Um, and that's just scratching the surface of what computer vision can do. You know, the, the excitement about computer vision today is mainly the self-driving car, but there's so many other places. Um, uh, and it's a very, very intensive area of uh, work by computer scientists. There's many, many tech startups now that whose, whose main mission is to improve computer vision and the improvements that have been made just in the last few years are just stunning. So, so I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't try to forecast, but, um, I think this productivity pessimism, I I emphasize productivity uncertainty, uh, episodes like we've had recently of a slowdown and say over a six year period, uh, are, have been common. Uh, there's nothing statistically surprising about it. Uh, and they've typically been followed by, uh, productivity growth are going to normal or or even above normal. So uh, so we have waves of productivity pessimism and then we have waves of productivity optimism. And that's what I've seen <laughs> and I've been watching this for quite a
0: while. Well, your remark about the trash pickup reminds me not at my current weight level to stand near the curb uh, as the trucks go by. I could be mistaken. You know, I, I know it's not, they're it's not, it's still getting some of the bugs out, I'm sure. I wouldn't want to be picked up by mistake. Uh, but it's an example of where technology is being applied and it may or may not be showing up in the data. Um, what do you think of this argument that, say, in GDP, so many of the pleasures of life of the last 10 years are not very monetized, monetized and we're not measuring um, a lot of the gains uh, correctly in the national income accounts?
1: Uh, okay, well, Chad Syverson at Chicago has... Uh, written a very interesting paper you know we're giving I think what started out as a kind of a neutral evaluation of that point. Uh and he he showed using various arguments that you know sort of put an upper limit and that that our upper limit is pretty limited. <laughs> and that uh the idea that, that we're we're somehow missing some huge benefits. Of course we are.
0: Uh but we always the, have.
1: But uh uh you know for example um uh the whole revolution in photography uh is not captured at all uh, in our in our data the, they you know, they they still collect only they still base statistics on the assumption that people are using film and sending it off to be developed
0: yeah uh,
1: and, and, you know, i don't know I would't know where to go with film to be developed yeah.
0: <laughs> right so, i spent I spent a so, hundred dollars for a software program to develop. Develop on my computer. It's a one-time payment. They upgrade it every once in a while, but I take ten thousand photographs um, on my computer. I have to about ten thousand, and it's glorious.
1: Uh, oh, I, have, I do! I do exactly the same thing. Probably the same software. <laughs> exactly.
0: And it's not being measured. It's certainly, my pleasure from it's not being measured. Certainly, the pleasure yeah, I yeah, get from true. not having to retake. You know, you only take twelve pictures and worry I got the right ones. That I can take a thousand is just wonderful.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that that's a that's a very concrete example. But I I think it's fair to say you know when you, when you look at what what the economy produces and what we consume, there's just an awfully large number of things where we know nothing much has changed, uh, like the generation of electricity uh, or oh, building houses is a great example. That it's, it's a very large budget share. It's a growing budget share for housing in in the U.S. and uh, Houses are being built today with exactly the same technology, virtually, as as they were 100 years ago, uh, and it's not. Uh, it's just. It, it's a very big sector. It's much bigger than any of the ones that, that people are excited about, like photography. Uh, but it's not one where where productivity growth has occurred. So, so you, you have to get realistic when you when you if you if you stare at the numbers for for what we make. Uh, it's an awful lot of totally boring stuff, where you know there's not much change in productivity going on, or even possible.
0: So when you say you're not a pessimist or an optimist, that you're used, that you're realist is what I describe it. The the fact no. that the last eight years have been so disappointing do you, is that just a, you're saying that's just a standard kind of slowdown that happens in the data now and then, and not to be worried about it.
1: Well, I don't know. I, I, I hesitate to say it. To hesitate to say that it's just because it's got it's received a lot of, of study like john fernald at the uh, san francisco fed um has been kind of the 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 highly knowledgeable expert on that point um and and he's written a, a number of papers that everybody should read who's interested in this uh, subject um but uh you know he he he, it, it seems like there was this period of rapid adoption of of uh, revolutionary uh, information processing technology, and that's that's somewhat slowed down, oddly, because the um, the uh, they, there's so many places that you deal with every day that could be immensely improved. Like the airline that I fly, that I won't name, uh, has a has a ridiculous. Bad website, a notoriously bad website, and uh, and just if they could just hire the right people, <laughs> who are numerous, uh, especially in Silicon Valley, to write a decent website, it would be a huge step forward for all of us. Um, so it just hasn't happened, and we sit there waiting. You know, every single every single time you enter anything, it does a whole page load. Nobody writes websites that way today. That's just pathetic. That's. <laughs> That's the website of uh, you know 1995, 20 years ago.
0: Well, the anyway, cost of so. the cost of revamping that website, the time it would take, and the uh, I guess they don't think those three seconds for that reload, which are annoying to us, are, are going to be that valuable, and um, they don't think they can capture that monetary gain. Maybe I don't know. Uh, I don't.
1: <laughs> know, but, but it's odd because you know the companies that were, were that grew up with the web, especially Amazon. You know, why doesn't Amazon start an airline? I, it seems to me that would just be perfect. Well, they're because close. They've got,
0: they've got <laughs> they're really close, actually. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me, by yeah, the way. If not they, me, yeah. nor, nor <laughs> I. Um, one thing you haven't mentioned that we haven't talked about yet are, is, uh, is interest rates. And one of the things that people have noticed, it's funny, it's been going on for decades, but we just sort of noticed it. At least some of us have. Uh, at least some people just started writing about it. They've been, they've been falling for a very, very long time. Uh, through both good times and bad times. Well, that shows that you're younger than I am. Yeah, I don't in, know about in, that.
1: In <laughs> the first half of the career of my career, they went up. <laughs> well, And then that's they true. they reached this spectacular peak uh, the around 70s. 1981. Yeah. No, 81, 81, okay. mostly. Yeah. Uh, and then it's been down from there. Um, but that's a lot. A lot time. of that was a lot of that. Of course, we're talking about nominal interest rates, so so they 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 were boosted a lot in the 70s by growing inflation. Um, then when we had monetary policy that further increased, it, we had just a double whammy of high interest rates and then and then we got back to normal uh in during the 80s uh, but then other things took over uh, uh we We got inflation you know down, so it was no longer an important factor but uh, then other things which resulted in declines in real interest rates it's normally the case that when first of all global, interest rates are global. Um, this phenomenon is all over the world, um, and world economic growth has slowed somewhat recently. It's not just the U.S. where it's slowed, but China, for example, a, a big factor in this is China. Um, so, so declining growth is one thing, uh, and uh, and there's others. I've just written a paper on this, which uh, you're invited to read, of course.
0: Yeah, we'll put a link up to it. But isn't that isn't that just the flip side of this concern that? the slowing of growth is a flip side of or just, I'll just say it's a puzzle um normally after a recession and certainly a recession of the magnitude we had in 2008 certainly the worldwide nature of it it would be followed by a a very uh, brisk and and dramatic recovery we haven't seen that um growth is seems sluggish is mm-hmm. what do we think's going on okay well I, when people all, ask me I just say I don't know it's easy for me but okay. uh, you know, <laughs> I have no idea is uh, well, my answer. I, I know something. Yeah. So tell, tell me what you I've know. Brought,
1: okay, so what I do know is, is that the labor market has behaved very much uh, the way that it has historically. There's There was nothing very surprising about what happened in the labor market once you come to grips with the fact that it was a very large shock. So in terms of, of immediate job loss, uh, it was by a considerable margin the worst. Um, and then... Other factors in a long time uh, 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 yes well yeah over the period since we measured unemployment we just started in nineteen forty eight um, so so uh, the uh, so that triggered this normally fairly long uh, uh, period in which unemployment gradually declines but that's always been true you know people always get excited about it because recessions don't happen very often and and you know for example most uh, reporters who were reporting on the Great Recession were not reporters when the previous one. recession yeah. occurred in, in, in 2001. Correct. Um, so, but if you if you take if you look, here's the here are the numbers on job destruction. There were there were eight million jobs destroyed, uh, as I mentioned before, at the, in late 2008 and and uh, early 2009. There were about five million jobs destroyed in the 2001 recession which was actually a pretty bad recession from the job destruction point of view. But, Mild uh, but other power. things, it was, it, it was followed. So, so the, really, the reason that, so we had a, what, what amounts to a pretty, uh, structurally, a pretty normal uh, recession recovery, except that it was really bad. Uh, so it was just scaled up. But it, qualitatively, it was all the same things that have happened in previous recessions. The thing that, the thing that makes everybody think that, that the recovery was slow as not what uh, we should be calling recovery at all, it's what happens to productivity. Productivity doesn't systematically do one thing or another over the business cycle. Here, we had low productivity growth at the same time that we had a a normally structured recovery from a very bad shock. So the combination uh, gave an extended period going up to today of disappointing results. As of today, all the disappointment comes from things that you wouldn't are not related to recovery. The recovery is complete, uh, but we're not where we'd like to be because productivity growth has been bad and also because we have a legacy of not having formed much capital since uh, 2007. Uh, and that's really hurting too. I and mean, that was another of the big factors that was in the paper that you started this discussion with.
0: And to summarize that, so that's a nice way to think about it, Right. Low capital formation and low productivity. Of course, in a way, they're almost saying the same thing. They're certainly related.
1: Um, uh, not, no, not the way. If, if we're talking about what what economists call total factor productivity. Explain. So, so it's, it's the it's – the, uh, um, normally the economy grows faster than you'd expect given uh, the fact that normally employment is rising and uh, capital is rising but output rises even more than you'd expect. Uh, and that's what's called a residual, and the, res- the residual is also called total factor productivity. The total factor means that it's considering and giving credit to all factors, capital and labor, uh, and not just labor. Um, so, so when you talk about total factor product productivity, it's already allowing, in this case, it's allowing for the fact that that uh, capital capital formation had been very weak. Um, By some measures, it's it's back to normal today. It's it's very tricky to to figure out what the right measure is. Uh, But there's still a legacy of capital that would have been formed if we hadn't had a severe recession, which wasn't. And, you know, that's uh, that's a a, a non-trivial part um, of the total.
0: So a lot of people want to blame... uh, uh, a lack of investment on uh, reg- uncertainty of various kinds, policy uncertainty. Um, you know, we just had uh, we had a, a two-term president who came in and overhauled the healthcare sector and the f- and financial regulation, two of the uh, two significant parts of the U.S. economy, and overhauled them in ways that where the impact of it wasn't clear for a while. The, I think the legislation still somewhat. Incomplete even today, um, parts so it's of it's a question, a question of whether it's viable. Right. The, the, the premiums
1: are going up so rapidly that and there's also non viability is, is, uh, so,
0: is definitely an issue. So a lot of people, certainly on this program, who share my free market views, have you know said, well, of course, is lousy or investment's lousy. It's because the it's a lot of uncertainty. Well, my thought is I'd love for that to be true for my biases, but it's always a lot of uncertainty. Now we have a president who's really uncertain about what policies are going to be put in place and i will see what
1: you know surely there's more uncertainty now than ever than before ever, right <laughs> but right. Uh, but they, the stock market loves it yeah, so, right so i you know it, it's a, you know it's a it's a i i'm very familiar with that literature and i certainly respect the people who've worked on it um but you know the the, the connection they getting a direct sort of causal connection has proven to be elusive in that uh, literature. What What is true is that, you know, uh, the, actually the 9-11, uh, which my colleague uh, has worked on, uh, uh, is uh, is actually a very interesting test of that proposition. In fact, it was the first thing that uh, the Bloom uh, looked at. Um, and what happened there was there was clearly an enormous rise in uncertainty right after 9/11 there was a brief period of uh, diminished spending investment and consumption spending uh, and then you know people looked around and said, "Well uh, I guess not and, the, and, the, and the, uh, uh, it, it occurred uh, toward the end of a recession uh, and, we, and the economy behaved quite normally after that, and then we had a pretty good expansion through through the end of 2007. So uh, so that was kind of a laboratory for that idea. It shows that the idea is valid, but on the other hand, the effect of what what was kind of a transforming experience for many of us uh, on the economy was remarkably small after, just after a few months. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, by the way, there's another uh, hypothesis floating around. The Council of Economic Advisors has a paper on its website uh, pushing this idea that there's been a substantial increase in market power uh, yeah I saw that u s economy uh and that translates directly into uh, uh, bad news on on several fronts uh including uh capital formation market power functions like a tax to discourage economic activity um and if it's true uh so far uh as market power is one of the topics I worked on thirty years ago and found it remarkably elusive to measure <laughs> and uh, i don't i i think these, there's a there's kind of a presumptive case uh in favor of it there has been some increase in concentration but I think it's going i think it's going to be an area of research i think the 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 policy uncertainty research is just has sort of done everything they can do and they've done a lot and and I think they've convinced some people perhaps not me um but I think this market power hypothesis, market power hypothesis, is going to get a lot of attention uh, as, as another thing that's that's holding back and maybe even holding back productivity. Uh, you know, I, to me, it's a somewhat more promising idea.
0: Well, let's shift gears to monetary policy. Uh, I ask my guests, and I get asked a lot by my friends, why uh, the Fed, why banks are holding excess reserves. Uh, in the magnitude that they are at the Fed. And I get asked this question. It's usually a related question, which is, if the Fed was so aggressive, why didn't we have inflation? And does that mean that Milton Friedman and others were wrong? And then people respond, oh, it's because the banks are holding the money. And when the money goes out in the economy, it'll cause inflation. And yet, I don't, have not heard a good theory for why the banks are holding on to massive amounts of excess reserves rather than investing them. It's related somewhat to our previous discussion. So what are your thoughts on these issues? Okay, well, first of all, the, the first question is easy to answer. The, the banking system as
1: a whole uh, has no choice about the level of reserves. It's completely dictated by the Federal Reserve. If, if one bank uh, decides to invest its reserves, the reserves just land at another bank. It's a, it's a sealed system. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding at this point, but it's it's absolutely central to understanding monetary policy to understand that that banks collectively have no choice whatsoever about the, their holding of reserves. It is completely determined on Constitution Avenue. So, so that's the first point to make.
0: Um, you want to explain that? So, the the normal way that the story gets told is that the Fed intervened in. Uh, two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, I think even kept going, quantitative easing of various kinds. Sure. They they bought a lot of assets that banks held, both government treasuries as well as mortgage backed securities, and they paid for those by crediting those banks uh, on the balance sheets that they have at the Fed with the with reserves that they could then lend out. Yeah, you know, a more instructive way to say that is they borrowed the funds from the commercial
1: banks. And use the proceeds to buy uh, bonds. Is- a lot of people don't understand that this—the process that you described—is simply borrowing in the capital market. The uh, the Fed greatly expanded the national debt by issuing uh, what are federal uh, obligations, borrowing, uh, which are reserves. It's just, it's as just simple as that. It's just a bank. It funds. It, it it gets funds from one source and it uses them to to buy securities of a different type.
0: And so the yeah. expansion, the so-called okay, so market where would that come from? Just that's electronic magic.
1: And no, it's just as you described it. It's a it's a conscious thing. The 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 Federal Open Market Committee directs, as they like to say, yep. the trading desk uh, to start buying stuff. Every time they buy stuff, as you pointed out, they do it because they have this automatic right to borrow from the banking system uh, by creating more reserves. So they 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 write a check, so to speak, which is which is increasing reserves, uh, and they use it to buy bonds. But
0: you know? you're suggesting that the banks, which have statutory limits, minimums, of what they have to hold at the Fed, now hold mm-hmm. because of those actions they have much larger um, amounts on the Fed balance sheet, and if they tried to lend those out to, say, homeowners and home purchasers, mm-hmm. uh, they they can't do that in. They can't change that net. They can
1: only well, the system can't.
0: Any one bank can.
1: Um, so uh, uh, one bank can say, "Oh, well, we're we don't like uh, what they're getting today, which is fifty fifty basis points, one half of one
0: that's the interest um, that the Fed's paying them that, for holding them there.
1: Exactly right, um, and they look around at and, and you know, and that's that's completely safe. Uh, and they say, "What can we get on other safe investments?" Uh, well, less than that. Okay, so so they 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 have absolutely no incentive, given the current state of the money market, uh, to do anything. Now, suppose
0: that—that's uh, a separate point. But, that's a good point. I was going to get to that, but that's not the main point. Keep going. Okay,
1: but then. Then if you ask, well, what would happen if uh, Alan Blinder, who's been very vocal in the Wall Street Journal on this and others, including me, but not not so much in print, said, uh, well, that's a silly policy. Let's change uh, the 50 basis points to zero. Uh, then banks would look around and they'd say, ah, now, now I'd really like to invest. Uh, and so they would start, as you were saying, they'd say, uh, I'm, I'm not getting I'm not getting the market return from reserves anymore. I'll try to get rid of them. But every time they try to get rid of them, which they do aggressively, but the ba- the reserves always land at some other bank, right? If you, if you buy something, if you if you make a loan, uh, then uh, the funds uh, are deposited in someone else's bank account. And then that, that means that the, the corresponding reserves are moved to that person's bank. Uh, there's nothing the system can do. Uh, one of the anomalies here is that... Uh, for crazy reasons, which I won't go into and don't even fully understand myself, but I know that my colleagues do. um, A a lot of the banks that the the reserves under certain circumstances can be held by foreign banks like Deutsche Bank in particular. So Deutsche Bank at one time, I don't know if it's true now, uh, was actually the single largest bank holder of excess reserves. Um, And they were, they were harvesting money from the American taxpayers uh, because the Federal Reserve for completely unexplained reasons was, Paying more than the market rate. This paying excess, paying it over the market rate, went into effect in October of uh, 2008. At exactly the wrong time. uh, Blinder just sputters, and he's you know, and uh, uh, he's a very middle of the road kind of a guy. He's not. This is not political. It's just economics.
0: Well, it's a mystery to me too, and I, I want to. um, That was my next question, which is. there are two ways to ask the question, which is, one, the question is, why did the Fed start paying interest on reserves? Uh, the standard economist answer is um, – and I and I know you've written a paper on it recently and you're going to be talking about it shortly – is uh, it was a new way for those new instrument for the Fed to use in affecting monetary policy. Uh, for those of us who might not be economists, who might be political scientists or just everyday people, it looks like a way to – Take care of the banks through a tough time when they were very uh, had very troubled balance sheets. Uh, economists don't like to give that answer, most of them. Uh, what's your explanation? Mm-hmm. In October of two thousand eight, what were they thinking? What were the either the economic ideas or the political forces that made that happen?
1: Uh, hard to say. I, and again, I'm not the I, I've I've somewhat stayed away from that because I you know I I, I never thought that. Uh, during the time, especially when it was 25 basis points, uh, that uh, it was the most important policy issue. that <laughs> some people do, like Alan Blinder did. Um, I, don't, I don't think we have a good answer to that. I think everyone was puzzled. Everyone applauded uh, the Fed uh, using the rate paid on reserves as, as an instrument, in fact. Uh, certainly my feeling is that it should be the instrument um, of uh, monetary policy. Uh, but but if you ask them what I thought uh, the rate should be, um, I would have said it should be negative. Uh, for example, the European Central Bank uh, uh, currently pays minus 40 basis points. So there's actually a big difference. Um, now there, obviously Europe needs to be stimulated more than the US today, but even today uh, at 50 basis points, uh, they're paying uh, you know, quite a bit more than they should. Um, and, and, and they know that because they've actually created a new kind of reserves, uh, the RRP. This is technical stuff, but uh, so they recognize it so fully that they've actually got two kinds of reserves now, um, and, and they pay the right interest rate, uh, which is currently 25 basis points on those new kind of reserves. So we're going to, I think, gradually see a swing toward a more reasonable use of, of this policy instrument by phasing out old-fashioned reserves and and then using new these new kind of reserves.
0: Let's make, um, well let, I want to make one more um, ask more question to capture this idea that, that the amount of reserves is fixed at the Fed and they just banks just move it around. So if if real interest rates or real productivity of the economy was to grow to say two, three historical levels, two, three percent, uh, while the Fed continued to pay a half a percent. Um, oh well that would be a big surprise right well if that happened walk me Mm -hmm. through the chain as as banks then tried to get rid of their reserves what what would happen so so an individual bank would say wow i can
1: i can now make a lot more money uh uh lending out even adjusting for risk um uh, for one thing, if the interest rates you're talking about would apply to to uh, Treasury bonds. Yeah, say. Um, and, uh, and then 5% so or they, 6% they say,
0: for real, with riskier yeah, exactly. things.
1: Right, okay, but let's, let's say there, there, there's a safe interest rate of, of, say, 50 to one half of 1% that the Fed is paying. And if you go to the Treasury and buy a Treasury bill, which is equally safe and, uh, and is short-term, and you get say three uh, percent. Well, it's a no-brainer to uh, spend your reserves uh, to buy treasury bills from somebody. But then what happens? That person puts it in the bank, and then that bank is saddled with extra reserves. Okay, so the the way we, the way we used to teach um, uh, the the ch- why monetary policy uh, can expand the economy was the same logic that. Uh, if there were reserves around, which uh, banks were regarded as hot potatoes, they wanted to get rid of them. Then, as they all collectively uh, started lending more, that would expand the economy. That was the basic theory of of why uh, boosting the quantity of reserves, which was traditional monetary policy. Uh, this is Milton Friedman monetary policy. That's what I was talking Quanti-
0: yeah. quantity of money, yeah, okay. not interest but- rates, not 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 that it makes investment look more attractive. Just, um, yeah, print yeah, money, spend it.
1: whole that whole mentality was developed during the time when reserves received zero interest. So everything was based on the quantity of reserves. If, if, if the Fed increased the quantity of reserves, it would put hot potatoes in, in the hands of banks. They would try to lend it out. That would expand the economy. As the economy expanded, then uh, we'd settle into a new equilibrium where uh, the, uh, the quantity of reserves was what the banks needed to use. And, and and the expansion would stop. Uh, today, we need to remap that uh, into thinking about what happens if you change the interest rate that's paid on reserves. And then the corresponding thing to increasing the quantity of reserves is to lower the interest rate. That low interest rates makes reserves hot potatoes. That expands the economy. Uh, so you're describing a situation that would be intensely expansionary. correct. Uh, way more than, way more than than I think anyone would choose um,
0: well, the only thing here. I'm confused about was well, probably more than one thing is that I thought you were going to say is that as they try to uh, acquire those treasur- treasuries that that demand's going to push the return on those back down and make it hard for those interest rates i'm just I'm wondering what the interest rate the Fed pays on reserves how that affects the real interest rate the economy and the well, rest of the economy It's,
1: oh, it's, it's very persuasive um, uh, that is. The, it simply has to be the case that uh treasury bills, which are essentially the same thing as reserves they're they're safe obligations of the federal government they they can't pay a return that's very different correct uh, so all kinds of things happen as you were saying uh, but but you're you're starting from a point where the Fed would never be they would never be in a situation where uh where market interest rates were that different from what they had chosen to pay on reserves. Uh, in the new regime, um, because uh, remember that with three trillion dollars of reserves outstanding, uh, they they have to they have to make those attractive enough. Um, uh, the stresses that would be caused in the situation you're describing would would be, you know, the, the economy would uh, practically explode by the because of this difference. Um, so what you what you'd see is the the Fed would never get into that situation. They would be inching up just as they did and and what they're going to do um, uh, next week is probably add another 25 basis points because they see market rates rising and they say, well, that's a, we, what, what matters to us is the difference between the what we pay on reserves and, and market rates. And we have to keep that differential fairly small because we've got $3 trillion of reserves out there. In contrast to the days when there were $17 billion of reserves, where they had a kind of a free hand to and, and in fact in those days didn't pay any interest on reserves and, and sometimes had a very large differential but three trillion is a very different number from seventeen billion
0: so what's the significance of that three trillion is it is it irrelevant is it important? Well, it's a,
1: it's, a, it's a huge piece of the federal debt um, and I
0: guess that's the right way uh, to think about it Rather it would, than it would,
1: yeah. it would it would, it it, would create what economists call a disequilibrium uh uh if the the identical components of the debt pay different interest rates.
0: But don't people think but that's that's a little bit put the treasuries aside, like you say, let's think of those are just the same thing. Out in the real world, there's some level of productivity that should be normally would be driving interest rates. I think what people are worried about is whether this this three trillion of three point two or whatever it is in the Feds Books is somehow affecting the real economy. You're saying it's no different than any other debt that the government runs.
1: Yeah, well, well, no, it could be because the Fed does have a choice about what uh, what interest rate to pay. That's they they do have that choice. I I believe that what we'll see and what we are seeing and what we'll see next week uh, is uh, they'll track the rise in interest rates and keep the interest rate on reserves. in their case, a little bit above market rates. Um, Blinder and I would say, where well, you got that wrong, it should be a little bit below. But to the extent that they they start switching reserves, which they could do at any time, from old-fashioned reserves to the modern reserves, which pay a lower interest rate, 25 basis points less, um, then um, then that would be a sign that they're, they were uh, reducing the subsidy that, that Blinder and others have Upset about, but I want to emphasize this is not a huge deal. This doesn't compare to some of the important policy decisions that are going to have to be made in in our nation's capital soon. Which is, can we possibly finance our government?
0: Well, we're going to save that for another um, <laughs> another episode. But but I, just to make sure I understand this, the if a lot of people will say, well, when are we getting back to normal? So you're saying that. It's not so unnormal to have $3 trillion compared to $17 billion because it's just a different yeah. Yeah. form of of government debt?
1: Absolutely. That's what, you know, th- this question when Bernanke started expanding the portfolio, uh, uh, very early in that process, he, he put an essay on the uh, Fed's website with a, uh, a speech that he'd given, which said, look, we have two things we can do when normalization occurs. We could either... Uh, keep the rate we pay on reserves uh, at a low level and uh, reduce ourselves back to 17 billion reserves. That's strategy one. That's a completely viable strategy. Or strategy two is we can pay market rates on reserves and we can continue to have trillions. And either one of those works fine. So don't worry. We've got two. We have belt and suspenders. Mm. Uh, and and he was right, and and I thought he he was and and you know and and uh, Yellen has continued to make the same point uh, as as often as necessary. So well, I think sure. this idea that that there was some kind of inflationary exit it was is you know, they've got two ways to prevent it from happening.
0: Yeah, I'm just not sure about the political economy there, and I'm not sure the political economy of mm-hmm. having fiscal policy the way you've described it centered in the central bank rather than in Congress, and oh. you know, there's less accountability and. I don't know. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so well, no let's, let's turn. I, I, I'm fascinated by the the NBER uh, dating, business cycle dating. Uh, it's a bit strong. I'm fascinated it's a bit strong, but I am very interested in it, so I want to turn to that now. Uh, as far as I understand from the web, you've been the chair of that committee since 1978 when it started, the official. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're dating for other recessions and and. and re- uh, booms, uh, healthy times that economists have created. The MBR has created, but the, since 1978, you've been the chair of this committee right. that decides when did a recession start, when did it end. What right. what is that like? How often does that committee meet? Do you sit around and for 20 minutes? Do you sit around for three hours? Do you argue a lot? How do you proceed? To to do that because a lot of us thought I did for example that oh it's easy it's just when you have two consecutive quarters of GDP going down that's a recession and then you see how long that goes for and then there's or, then it ends but that's mm-hmm. not what you do exactly so what do you do
1: okay well if, you know that first of all the two quarters is a generalization that uh, isn't bad in particular our uh, dating of the uh, the turning point when the recession began, the most recent recession in December of 2007, uh, fits perfectly. I mean, there's just no controversy about it. Um, on the other hand, if you go back to uh, the recession before that in uh, 2001, uh, that, that idea um, kind of breaks down. Uh, and it's, if you, well, one thing, you, the, the two-quarter thing was in the days when GDP was only measured quarterly. But now GDP is measured monthly.
0: Correct.
1: Um so so we and that was true actually when we made the decision in two thousand one. Um and uh the, we didn't it didn't help. They <laughs> the, the uh, uh the the there was a kind of a zigzagging of monthly real GDP, not quarterly but monthly, that still created a big challenge. Um
0: if so, I remember the so, There was a revision of the GDP data that changed one of the quarters from negative to positive, I think, net, even though some of the months were negative, maybe.
1: Yeah, and that's, of course, something we have to live with. Um, uh, So, I mean, one thing about the committee is that, in principle, uh, if if we get persuasive new information, we can change the chronology. Uh, That's never happened under... The time that, uh, that I've chaired the committee, or when the committee existed, it was done more informally before seventy-eight. Um, but uh, we we do have that. Um, but uh, but anyway, you ask que- yeah. you ask some other questions. The about logistics. The Tell committee- me. So so first of all, um, uh, most of the time the committee does absolutely nothing. Um, I assume. That is, it does not meet. Uh, uh, it it meets as soon as uh uh say some small number uh of members of the committee uh say, boy, we better get started here. It looks like it looks like this expansion's finally coming to an end and we're gonna have to eventually often uh, uh you know a year later or even sometimes two years later, uh we wait uh to be sure that we're right. Um for one thing as you the, the revisions of the data uh, tend to be quite aggressive. Uh, in the over the first year, um, so we wait for the data to calm down uh, and we also are have to deal with the fact that may there's a possibility that the for example uh, the sometime in the next year that there might be a pause uh, in the growth of the economy but but then growth resumes if it resumes quickly enough we 'd say well that we don't call it a recession. Uh, uh, the there's a criteria that we apply to decide whether, uh, say, a small uh, negative uh, development is big enough to be called a recession or not. We, that's something we, in principle, would have to think about. It's never actually been, uh, uh, a, you know, it's always been clear to the committee in, in the time that I've run it. So we, we've never had something that was just barely a recession. Every recession is either not a recession at all, clearly, or clearly a recession. Um, so, so that respect, although that's a theoretical problem, it hasn't been a practical problem. Um, the work of the committee, when it's active, is almost all done by email, and since email came into being, um, so spreadsheets go back and forth, data goes go back and forth, opinions go back and forth. Then but but before we actually make a decision we have a conference call um and uh, and then work it out also another important thing is we have a long discussion of the exact wording of the announcement hmm. that's that's what clarifies the whole process is as cuz we we put out a press release the whole thing is very disciplined it's sort of like the what the FOMC does um uh and and we we put out a press release and um and it explains the logic and what what data we're looking at and things like that.
0: Uh, the FOMC being the Federal Open Market Committee, so right. I guess you've ruined some of my illusions. Uh, I I assumed you sat in a beautiful boardroom somewhere in Cambridge, uh, possibly New York, and and pounded the table and argued for June over July. Or, but it's, it sounds like a civilized process where <laughs> spreadsheets <laughs> do most of the heavy lifting. Is there any is there is there ever any disagreement do you guys ever fight oh sure oh absolutely
1: yeah 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 no no we have to um uh I'm you know we do there's a certain amount of confidentiality that uh that our operating rules require um so I can say yes there's a there's a, there's a frank discussion, but I would be forbidden to say who said what
0: i understand um uh, uh, we're almost out of time. I want to get to a big picture question. Uh, for me, the Great Recession was a big learning experience. A lot of dimensions, um, mainly about the role of finance in the in the economy and the role of how investment banks worked and what leverage did, and um, that interaction between the financial sector and the real economy. I just was something I didn't know much about and had to learn a lot about, and probably a good chunk of what I learned was is not true, but it, that, that was one of the things I had to learn. And certainly there was a lot of optimism in, in October of 2007 or November before the <laughs> December onslaught of that recession that you mentioned. Uh, and a lot of people did claim at the time that we'd kind of figured it all out. Um, and in the aftermath, it seems to me there's sort of, uh, there's two groups. There's people who said, yeah, we really did know, understand it the whole time and they explain why the last 10 years or eight years are explicable. And there's another group who say, no, we got to start from scratch or i got to re- radically revise my view of the world. One, where do you fall in that group? And two, uh, how do you see the profession as a whole in its response to this uh, event?
1: Well, I think for the first observation I'd make is that there were papers uh, that had been uh published and, and were uh, uh, were well-known in, in the literature that formed a basis for uh, economists' uh, uh, attention to this question of, of how financial events affect the whole economy. Uh, in particular, uh, Bernanke, Gertler, and Gilchrist uh, paper, which was already famous, became way more famous as a result of being kind of the backbone of of the modeling and the, the upsurge of interest in the subject that obviously occurred after the crisis in September of 08. Um, so so on the one hand, I think it's, it's, it's just completely false to say that we were clueless and we'd never thought about this and, and that we had to start from scratch. On the other hand, of course, a huge amount of interesting work's been done uh, stimulated. Uh, it's been a huge stimulus to, to um, further thinking and and further integration of finance, the integration of financial thinking into macro modeling in general has advanced over this period faster than it would have otherwise because, because it was so clear that the financial crisis triggered a big contraction of activity across the board. Um, but you know, I'm kind of in the middle of that. I, I, I don't, I, I, I reject this idea that the profession was completely, uh, unprepared and I never thought of it before. Uh, but uh, I also recognize that um, we we didn't see it coming. Uh, uh, you know, my wife is an economist who who knows a lot about um, mortgage finance, and we kept a sticker on the refrigerator saying, "You know, there's only 250 billion of subprime mortgages out there. It can't How be such important a big deal." Could it be? Oh. <laughs> How important <laughs> could it be? So, well, we had to take the sticker down <laughs> mm. sometime, and even before. September of eight we recognized that there was some uh, you know the whole the whole spring and summer of 08 was a time when when everyone was getting nervous um, and the economy was in fact contracting so um,
0: well, let me ask a, it
1: was a gradual process
0: let me ask a related question which is um, I think I don't know if I'm younger than you but I'm not so young i'm sixty two and I often remind my guests that I was I went to graduate school in the late 70s, and I went to Chicago, so I was trained with skepticism toward Keynesianism, which seemed to have um, uh, pervaded an increasing portion of the profession as well outside of Chicago. And then um, with the view that – and certainly our colleague John Taylor will say, oh, yeah, everyone knew – In 1990 or 1997, I don't know what year you want to pick, that Keynesian stimulus is is, is ineffective, uh, short-term stimulus is ineffective. And then we come to the Great Recession. All of a sudden, people are Keynesians again to some varying amounts uh, depending on where you go. And I did not realize until preparing for this interview that you are the originator of the saltwater-freshwater distinction Mm -hmm. in a 1976 paper. Uh, Saltwater being the coasts, Cambridge and Berkeley and Stanford and MIT that are more sympathetic to the Keynesian models. To some, I mean, there's a lot of difference and distinction. So I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but my my real question is: You think we've made progress in our understanding of the business cycle? Um, you know, I was taught by Robert Lucas. He went back to. He was a Mitchell fan. We, you know, I got some taste of that history. It felt like. Again, in two thousand and six, we were really kind of quote solved it. Seems like to me we're to some extent back to square one. Do you think we've, but maybe not? So tell me your view.
1: No, I think that. No, I think a lot of the ideas that had permeated sort of the consensus macro modeling. I think a lot, of, a lot. Of, you know, first of all, the term Keynesian is uh, is means so many different things to different people. Uh, the if you, if you look at. uh how most macroeconomists uh, build a model, it has a huge number of things in common. Um, a a a parting point, in fact, what's called the new Keynesian model, isn't isn't related to this question that you mentioned. All that is whether or not fiscal policy is effective. It all has to do with uh, whether the economy reaches its equilibrium quickly or whether there's a time when prices are wrong and those prices are sticky and, and wages may be sticky. Um, but then there's a, a lot of work and this is certainly in the labor market side, this is something that I've contributed to is, is, uh, applying, applying sort of more standard analysis, no, nothing sticky, but, uh, uh, but other things that, that sort of mimic stickiness, um, that, that represent an equilibrium. Uh so that kind of work is, is, I think, uh, has taken us quite a ways, and it's uh, it's been in place for for a while. You know, Lucas's ideas, which just seem so dramatically uh, 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 different from the way we've been brought up, uh, uh, you know, have became fully integrated, and now are seen as, well, that's sort of the old-fashioned way of thinking. You know, rational expectations, that's old-fashioned. The idea is sweeping now that uh, that we should model expectations as beliefs that can be uh, uh, can be different across people, heter- heterogeneous beliefs, and you know people in Chicago are just as enthusiastic as anybody about pursuing that kind of idea. Um, there's there's the idea of schools of macro has pretty much disappeared, uh, uh, especially uh, in the younger generation. It's, it would be impossible to find you know an economist uh, in a in a top university today who could be reasonably identified to be well especially a monetarist but even a, even a keynesian in the old fashioned sense we we all build models in which if the government purchases more uh, there's higher gdp it just has to be and and no one would disagree about that today so if if that's the if that's the question of what keynesian means then Keynes is one completely we all agree that that an important determinant of total activity is how much the government chooses to buy.
0: Well, I was going to end there, but I can't I can't, because I, I have to challenge that statement. Um, certainly there are many, many illustrious economists, far more illustrious than I am. The two the two that come to mind are uh, Valerie Ramey and Robert Barrow who've suggested that, that relationship is not very reliable or doesn't hold at all, or could be negative. No, 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 you no. I don't no, think that's
1: true. No, no, no. You're talking about first of all, is a student of mine, uh, and I follow her work very carefully. But
0: doesn't she uh, say that? Doesn't she say that government spending has little effect on? That this, no, that the multiplier they, is quite small. Okay,
1: so so her most recent paper says. Um, well, first of all, you have to decide whether you're at the zero lower bound or not, uh, and if you aren't, then a a billion dollars of government purchases adds about a billion dollars to, to GDP, so the so-called multiplier is one. Uh, and that's – I think that's not – that's within the consensus uh, range, it's certainly within my beliefs. Um, that, doesn't stimulate that, sure any, said,
0: that doesn't stimulate anything, and it's, that's not offset sure – sure sure. that's, that's not worrying whether it's offset by monetary policy?
1: No, that's assuming that it is offset. Nonetheless, uh, there's an effect. Now by historical pattern of yeah, this is yeah. this is this is pouring over historical data correct uh, and 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 some old examples of rapid change of of government purchases are are the main source of the information so it's, it's since we haven't had much of it um, in the last twenty years uh, this is mostly evidence from from uh, uh like more than twenty years ago um but it's the evidence we have, and and uh, and you know studies of other countries have have been supportive. Um, there's there's a big literature on this topic. Um, a multiplier of zero, which is which would mean no effect, is outside the range of of almost all uh, empirical work and all modeling. It would not be a viable position. Uh, and uh, I don't, I've, i you know I know I know Valerie's work, and, and you know and and Barrow's uh, paper, QJE paper. Uh, gets positive multipliers, not large, but positive. Um, and there's pretty much agreement now that at zero lower bound, where monetary policy's hands are tied, that that multiplier is higher. Um, and that's what Valerie's most recent work shows. Um, so I think it all fits together. But, but there's nobody, nobody who says that it makes no difference at all uh, to if the government buys more. And that's a substantive thing that's happening in the economy. Of course, it's going to influence the economy.
0: Well, we started this conversation by saying that the increase in federal government spending, which went through the states, didn't have much of an impact because they didn't spend it.
1: So, no, no, no. We don't. We don't. We have no clue how much impact it had because it didn't happen. <laughs> so, you you have to you, you, you learn nothing about the multiplier uh, if nothing happens to government purchases, which is exactly what happened during the uh, over the last decade.
0: My guest today has been Robert Hall. Bob, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening